Welcome to the Salad Days podcast, featuring interviews from your favorite artists talking about their musical origins and humble artistic beginnings. Join me, Dave Ulrich, as we travel back to the early days and hang out for a bit. Our journey this week features our special guest, Don Kerr, from the band Communism and many, many more. Okay, so when I say many more, it really is many more, uh, because some may know Don from the Reostatics, some may know him from playing with Ron Sexsmith, some may know him from, more recently playing with Bahamas or Dan Mangan. Uh, but we focus on some different themes here, uh, which is dance, uh, as you'll see in, a, in his band Communism, and things like healthy eating, positivity, family, a lot of really, uh, really interesting themes that come up in this conversation. And uh, it was really great to get together with Don. Go deep. So here it is, the mighty Don Kerr on Salad Days. is to just really get uh, conversations from stories and, and really it's about the how and why you chose to start playing music. So, right. so the first question uh, that I, or the first topic that I usually cover is just a uh, point of our shared musical history. And uh, there's so many things that we have in common uh, over the years, but the one that I thought was uh, very important to me was the, all the work that you did uh, on my project called Egger. And, the timing of that was so interesting uh, for me because it was um, uh, it was right after my daughter was born, and uh, I had never actually done a musical project on my own, and so I just started to uh, collect gear, and I was starting to record some ideas and things, and I um, because I actually had this band jamming with a bunch of friends, and through that I I found out I was singing more and I was playing different things more, so I came to getting a bunch of uh, songs together. And I got in touch with you, and uh, you just didn't help me record it. You basically, you know, you, you wrapped it with a bow. You, um, you know, you were playing with a, a bunch of guys at that time, which were kind of known as Scribbled Out Man, and that kind of became the band. And you did so much work on the recording. And so, uh, you know, I always really appreciate that. And uh, that's probably one of the one of the biggest things that we've done. But uh, what would you what would you uh, think about when you think about our shared history, Don? Yeah, well, that's a big one for sure. Because for me, I just moved into my house from a from having a you know being a single guy with a recording studio on Toronto Island or in a warehouse before that, and then you know I started a family and bought a house, moved my whole studio operation into my basement, and I had some you know worry that people would want to that people wouldn't just go to a basement to record because I, I've always, I'd always had, or I'd had the last couple studios I'd had were, were really awesome, huge places. Yeah. Uh, destination recordings. And, uh, but yeah, you know, I was, I was settling into a, the same, uh, period of life as you were with kids and, and, uh, you know, and, and still wanting to make music and doing, great things and creative things and i so it, we resonated very well there as like fellow dads rocking out 
in that's the, right in the the hours, when you can sneak in the time as opposed to when you're in your 20s and you're like you you don't have any respect for time whatsoever you have just got free time all the time and you put stuff off <clears throat> suddenly you're a you're a dad and you got like oh i, I can get tuesday night <laughs> i can go do something on tuesday night and you just get stuff done it was yeah, that's that's exactly what it was, and it's amazing how much that you know you have continued to get done uh, since then. Not just with uh, the you know the studio itself, which turned out great, and I'm assuming it just continues to to do really well. All the different projects I see come out of it, it's great. But um, but yeah, yeah. So that's that's good. But okay, so let's um. I would I want to add my okay. When I think of you and our yeah. connection. I think of that car you guys had to rent. <laughs> to, to drive through the Rockies in the winter, uh, uh, <laughs> that I, we got to explain that, I guess. But that's that's a stand. That's like an outstanding thing uh, worth talking about. So yeah, yeah, okay. Well, let's we could continue that. So that was the um, that goes to Rio, when you were playing with the Rio Statics, and uh, yeah, know, we had the chance to new. do. I think I was pretty new in the Rio Statics. Yeah, yeah, you, yeah, you, were, yeah, you were new, and uh, you know by that point of this was you know the inbreds had done that would i think would have been our third tour uh with the, with the rio statics our very first tour out east was with was with the rios with dave clark playing and then it was we also going at west uh, a year later and then this was this was after i think our third record and we got invited um by your management at the time to uh join you out in victoria and then go from victoria all the way to thunder bay yeah. Uh, but there was this really funny conversation where we did the very first show and after the show, I, I remember saying to your manager, so, um, so we're going in the van with you, right? This was the whole premise of it. Like we literally flew out and we're going to go in the van with you guys. And, and he's like, oh no, no, you're not. No, you're not. Um, so there was like this major misunderstanding and the solution that was found was to buy this really old, um, unsafe car that or what was it a Mazda? totally so yeah something like that like where you know that yeah like 400 bucks um and we were like a lawnmower with a roof on it like it was so little and and un unqualified for the job it was february i think it was yeah dead of winter summer tires on it probably and then i remember like leaving out of vancouver the joke was i went to roll down the window and the handle just kind of came right off you know <laughs> It was that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I remember, you know, knowing that you, I was excited to be touring, you know, with the Rios, and you guys were going to be there, and I was excited about that, and and uh, I don't, I f can't remember if I had heard you guys were going to come with us or what. I maybe I didn't know anything. Like most of the band were just like, uh, but I think I don't know. I think I was the one guy in the band who wasn't thinking, that's not my problem. I was like, what the fuck are we doing to these guys? They're going to die. Are you going to mention the one? So the one very specific uh, manifestation of what you just described was the point where you guys got, on one city to the next city, you guys got way far ahead of us for some reason. And we were thinking at the time uh, that, you know, at the least we should be able to like stick with you guys. And you you had a trailer because that was the time you were recording. I believe you were yeah. recording your shows. And, uh, there was this one point where you guys got really far ahead of us and we were, we were in the back and starting to get kind of, uh, nervous because of any, any number of reasons running out of gas, uh, you know, the, the, the tires, the winter. And then I just remember, uh, that, that you're, um, uh, we're going along in your van is 
pulled over to the side of the road, Trans Canada somewhere. And I, my memory is that it was you standing there saying, like, as if you told the guys or somebody told the guys, you got to stop and wait for these guys. Am I, do I, am I remembering that right? Um, yeah, I don't, I, I'm not sure, but I do, I, I remember, I don't remember making the band stop, but I believe it because I was, I was really concerned for, like, I thought we can squeeze these guys into this van and it won't be, it won't be comfortable, but everyone will live kind of, that was what I thought. And, uh, but those guys had been touring for years. I, I hadn't been, and they were probably like, this doesn't make any sense. This should have been figured out before. This is the manager's fault or whatever. But, or yeah, I remember there just wasn't room for, I don't, you know what I mean? I don't know what the deal was. All I just, but I, I think just, it's one of those, it's one of those stories that when you're in it, it's terrifying, but uh, looking back on it, 25 years, whatever, it's kind of, kind of funny. And there's many more stories about as we went across the country that happened with that car. But that's, those are some of the ones that I remember, particularly leaving Vancouver and just going, what are we doing? You know? I, I, I just think of that when I think of the inbreds, if you want to, for me, the thumbnail sketch of the inbreds is, is you two guys in a car that's worth less than a cab ride trying to get across <laughs> the biggest country in the world in the winter and following us. That's just yeah, and, not, and not at the beginning of our uh, touring life either. This was more towards the end of our touring life, so which kind of made it even more a little bit, uh, you know. Well, some may say it could have contributed to the end, being the end of your touring life. Yeah, yeah, you could say that for sure, for I sure. I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> Okay, so so Don, let's uh, we'll, we're gonna go to these kind of like the the same question that I start with, and the, the idea is we're just trying to go back. We want to get a feeling for what what your life was when you were kind of like in high school, and so the kind of intro question is that uh, we're imagining that we're in your house on a Friday or Saturday night, and there's some something on the stove or something in the oven. There's a smell in the house, and it's uh, ideally a good smell, and you really remember it. So the question is, what was on the stove, and why do you remember it so well? Wow, that's a good, uh, good question. I, uh, I would have to just say my mom's apple pie. Yeah. As as uh, cliche as that may be, because that's uh, that's what comes to mind. I would be, I'd be watching TV and probably drawing. I had this chair in the in the family room uh, with it. That, that I would sit in and draw endlessly. And I had a big brother who played guitar um, and he played sports and he was good at school. He did everything. And I had a sister who uh, was into fashion design and uh, super nice. And my parents were very sweet and shy. Yeah, I would, on a Friday night, I'd be watching... Uh, there was this show that nobody remembers called James at 16, which I think I was 15 probably when it came out. And I was like, it was just this show about a kid, like becoming a young man. And uh, I think it lasted one season. And it, for, for me, that's like a iconic kitschy thing of that time. But, you know, but it's just one of many. Like I, you know, I knew all the Gilligan's Island and the, Three's Company and and uh, every TV show. It was. I didn't need the internet back then. I just was glued to the TV. I can remember watching shows like, um, you know, Wayne and Schuster, uh, yeah. some kind of classic CBC stuff. And yeah. of course, my parents were really into Lawrence Welk, so that might be on there as well. 
somewhere in the background. Um, That's interesting that you say sketching though, because sketching is such a, talk about that one a lot actually with just uh, friends and family and stuff. But it's such a, it really is such a great intro to art. You know what I mean? In general. Oh yeah. Expression, you know, the thing that has blown my mind uh, as, as you, as I've gotten to know more and more musicians, you know, is how many of them draw and cartoon and sketch. And it's just like, it goes, almost goes hand in hand all the time. It seems like it's a similar, just like, Oh, I'm, I'm going to be by myself doing a little doodling or whatever. And, and uh, that somehow resonates and, and goes well with the, uh, the urge to make music. Yeah, the urge to create for sure. Yeah. What what would you say um, if you know you mentioned the the room and the and the TV? If you had a um, like a music player, you know, at one point there's this kind of epic story in my childhood where our our main music player got um, stolen in the middle of the night uh, by our essentially our neighbors. Uh, wow. were a bunch of young punks, and they broke in at night and they stole our stereo, which was a pretty big deal because uh, that was. You know, where you played your vinyl and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, I mean, it probably weighed 80 pounds, too. Yeah, like it was pieces. There's, there's a whole funny story about how uh, my brothers found, using binoculars, they could see that the neighbors had stuffed it in, in this, like, kind of like this uh, old uh, oven in there, kind of like, almost like in their yard. And there was this whole uh, showdown, basically, where our entire family and some of the neighborhood went over and confronted them. But, wow. but where I was going to go with that was actually that what it meant was we went from ha- having a record player suddenly the replacement because they they took that um all that gear in as evidence we didn't get it back for like a year or something so we had to get something in the interim and we got this big box that played eight tracks and so i remember this was we went from i don't maybe did i guess probably had a a player or two but somehow we were introduced to eight tracks and the the one i remember we had was three dog night Uh uh-huh wow what was what was on your uh eight track player don I don't think I remember my friend a little later. Once my my friends were driving, and I didn't drive immediately, but one guy had got his license right at sixteen and had a, his parents' car, and he could. There was eight track player in there, so we'd go and buy all these progressive rock albums on eight track and drive around listening to Yes and Jethro Tull and whatnot. Um, and it was crazy hearing like the other songs bleed through sometimes, you know, and anytime there's a gap on an eight track tape, you can hear some part of the, one of the other eight tracks that's in there. Yeah. Faintly in the background warbling. It's pretty funny, but yeah, I was going to think, I was going to say my first memory of, of a music player was a, was a transistor radio um, that I, you know, I, I remember and I had these pet rats that I, that my rats, we had a dog, but I had these pet rats. My brother well. had a rat too. Yeah. I had three of them and, uh, and I would let them run around in my room and then put them in the cage at night. And, uh, I just remember listening to, um, uh, BTO, you ain't seen nothing yet. <laughs> I'm not this eight track player. I mean, I mean, uh, not the eight track player, the transistor radio in my bed, laying there with my rats running around all over me and all over the the room. And I was just like, <laughs> basically like in love with my rats feeling like <laughs> I just, the, the, the love feeling of, uh, from a good pop song. And, and, uh, 
just feeling great and just that's a pretty funny feeling i'll never I, forget how, how I, I can recall uh getting a uh, thing was it looked it was actually a coke can but it was a radio like just fm or went on i remember that was probably one of my first experiences of the same thing like being being in my room or somewhere with a you know battery powered radio and i could listen to yeah probably classic rock you know it's those those first impressions of i was the last of seven kids there was definitely a lot of uh, access to music in the house but oh, yeah. uh, something with a radio gives you your own kind of like your own it's your own thing yeah definitely well what about being the youngest kid like how many people have you talked to and they're the, the youngest kid becomes the artist like it seems to be pretty common as well yeah i think uh yeah who knows i mean a lot of people it's like there's an element of you see all the different things that your older siblings do and you can kind of maybe pick from them or observe them, whether that's, you know, like, as you said before, the brother that's sports and the brother that's music, um, you know, Pete Elkis had a really interesting comment when he suggested that him and his brother in a different world could have easily switched and he could have been the football player and, and his brother could have been the guitar player. Cause they, there was, you know, some, um, yeah. overlap of skills or whatever, but it just went this other way, you know? Yeah. I feel like the older kids, Especially the eldest has, has to be like has to prove themselves or something. Generally, be like okay. That's true. And there's pressure by the family to be like, we need to know that that you're going to succeed in the world. And uh, so you know they they uh, they work hard. And then the more you know, you being the last of seven kids, by the time you came around, your parents were probably like, oh yeah, we're good. This guy can do whatever he wants. <laughs> or not without even That's thinking true. that just subconsciously you're like yeah bonus kid like you're, you would have been like the fourth bonus kid you know like so because <laughs> having three kids i i you know being the youngest of three i felt like i didn't notice at the time but looking back i think oh yeah i could pretty much do what i wanted to do it's like that so concept of sl slipstream you know what i mean like you're you're, yeah. you're way you're way in this slipstream after seven kids yeah. i think <laughs> and the other kids are just helping I mean, my siblings helped me a lot. I didn't get beat up or, yeah, you know, by my big brother. He, but uh, they were just—they help you consciously, and then they help you because yeah, you watch them go through things, and they're navigating the world, and you get to benefit from that. The, the joke academically for me, and I remember this very vividly, was that uh, every single one of my siblings went to the same high school, and so uh, I can remember specific teachers. You know, on the first day of class in grade ten. They'd go, they kind of run down the attendance and they'd, they'd, they'd see Ulrich and they, hilarious thing where you just see them like look up from the page and go, they'd look at me and go, sometimes they would just say, oh, you're going to be, you know, another egghead basically, like another, another good student. But it was like, they, they would know, they would have seven, six prior examples of, yeah. of uh, <laughs> behavior or whatever, you know, skill or whatever. Presume that you are going to be the same. And I guess they were close enough to being right. Yeah. Yeah, by and large, by and large. Yeah, um, kind of cool too. That... Now, what about okay, going in, and just going back into high school? Uh, one thing is that I'm always interested in is sort of like the your your kind of like your first either uh, experience of either seeing live music or maybe playing live music or being on a stage. Any of those things trigger any uh, thoughts oh, from yeah. from high school? Kind of one of each of those that are that are cemented in my in my soul. So. Yeah, I went. I was in grade nine, and my brother was in grade thirteen, which was a thing back then. 
And uh, so his band was playing at the Talent Night. And uh, I had a couple friends who played guitar, and they were talking about putting together a band. And uh, I just didn't feel like I was the right kind of guy for that. But I, these guys were my best friends. But uh, I went to see my brother play, and he, with his science and math nerd buddies, put together a mock punk band. And uh, we're doing funny stuff. That was, you know, it was typical high school fun. But then there was a trio playing Led Zeppelin and Deep Purple and Heavy Duty, Heavy Rock. And the drummer was this little skinny guy, like a guy who weighed like 80 pounds or something. He was even smaller than me and as skinny. Because at the time I was six foot tall and and 90 pounds. Um, and I just saw this guy play such with such power these giant drums and and uh make such a sound and and i loved it and i just thought i could do that yeah because i guess before that before i'd seen him i my friends were playing guitar and i thought oh that's too hard for me and i'm shy i could never do that and then i see this kid who's older than me by a couple years probably and i just thought whoa that's that's a possibility. It's not even, you know, it was it blew my mind. I just went home like I'm going to play drums in your band with my friends, and that's what happened. And then we played our first gig like a year later, probably at the talent show, but it was in the cafeteria instead of in the theater. And we got up and we started playing "Walk This Way." It was our first song. Oh yeah. So I start, and the the bounce back. From the bat, from the glass, all the windows at the back of the cafeteria, like 200 meters away, bouncing back, the echo of what I was doing was louder than what I was hearing myself do. It was so hard to play, suddenly not in a basement or a garage, but in a huge room, and just it was totally confusing. And uh, but I guess we made it through to some degree. I don't know what it sounded like, but I just remember the first time hearing slap back in the real oh. world going like, Oh my God, how do I focus on what I'm doing? Cause I'm hearing what I did a second ago. So loud. I just know being in the crowd the first time that I heard versions of slapback, whether it's in my high school. Um, I, I, I loved the ambient kind of messiness of, of live, uh, sound sometimes it just, it, I don't know, it really elevated the experience, particularly the drums. And, and one comment I would make about the high school experience, speaking drummer to drummer, even though you're much more than a drummer, Don, but if we do talk drums, I will say that uh, uh, I've told this story of this my high school band that we won this battle of the bands. But my school was like an art school, so it meant that there was all this amazing gear. And so when we got a chance to go up and play, they put me. I got behind this drum kit that was it was like Neil Pert level. They had right. every every single uh, every symbol, every tom tom, everything you could imagine. I remember sitting. I felt like I was sitting behind like a like a, a Cessna pilot behind, behind a 747 or something like that. And, and plus stuff was mic'd, you know, you had like, you could hear your kick drum. You, I, was, I think it was even monitors. It was the first time I'd ever experienced that. And, you know, we sit down and, and kick into rock and roll Led Zeppelin. And it was like, Whoa, you know, it was, it was one of the coolest experiences ever. Yeah. My earliest, coolest memory was, uh, you know, having played like three or four times at high school with, being met with, largely being met with uh, disinterest because we were playing 
uh, we were we were nerds playing rock and roll or playing progressive rock. So we were either, you know, might have been playing Walk This Way, which everybody liked, but it was just still us, these kind of loser geek nerd guys. So, we, you know, nobody really cared too much. Everyone who liked the band was in the band. And, uh, but later, like a couple of years later, before I was 18 or 19, we, a, a band started playing clubs. And the first time, first gig we played was at the Turning Point in Toronto, in Yorkville, which has been long gone. But uh, I remember playing there, and people got up and started dancing <laughs> for the first time. And I, I that that rocked my world big time. I just thought, oh my God, people moving to the beat that I'm playing, and that you know the song that we're all playing. But like, I'm giving these people something to dance to like personally that's so it was exciting to be like connect i'm blatantly connecting with people not not just like playing some music and they have to sit there and listen to it until we're done living their life this is a very good foreshadowing to the the second part of the conversation where we play your your early track because uh <laughs> this one definitely when you mentioned dancing We'll talk about it after, but this one makes me think of dancing. So uh, this song is called Wave, Make Us Feel, and is the band called My Pal Hoagie? That's right. Okay, here it is.
Okay, so that was uh, Don's early song from his band called My Pal Hoagie. So, Don, uh, one of the most interesting things about that song for me is, again, I'm loving the way these these uh, early tracks allude to where things may go for that artist. And the fact that with communism and many things, you were just talking about the danceability of music and the ability to play it in a danceable way. Now, this this song to me is very much the first track that we've ever had here on this this uh, this show where I would say it's danceable. So talk a bit about this song, Wave, Make Us Feel. Yeah, so yeah, with those, a couple of those the best friends from high school and then a guy that, that we met later named Nigel, uh, who's from Hamilton, actually, a whole other town, but uh, was such a, an amazing singer and guitarist that he joined our band and uh and we had this band called my pal hoagie and we played the cameron house and the cabana room and larry's hideaway all these little new wave uh places in the in the 80s in toronto um or you know places where you'd play music uh and we we played new wave music for sure so uh yeah we just we were called My Pal Hoagie uh, after the great composer Hoagie Carmichael, which was kind of funny and uh, <laughs> one of the dumbest names ever of, of a band. But I think we all wanted to show off that we were fans of, of the one of the most sophisticated songwriters in history because we, we fancied ourselves uh, musically sophisticated, but we were try- trying to make people dance trying to get a record contract and so yeah we had we had a whole bunch of songs and that was one that I wrote the music for and then my friend Charles wrote the lyrics he wrote a lot of the lyrics for us we all basically were like we want to play music we all we want to do is play music but none of us have anything to say right except Charles he was like he was our the poet and the the thinker he He'd stopped playing in the band, but he was he was writing poems and lyrics all the time. So we would pilfer from his poems for lyrics for our songs. So you get these danceable synth-based things with like totally lofty singing or lyrics, that is, and and a lot of jumpy percussive movement. Uh, so we wanted to make people to dance, but we didn't really. I don't think we really knew what that meant uh, as much as we could have at the time. We were very hyper young '80s guys. New yeah. wave is definitely the term I would. I would. That's what it strikes that that music as. Is there something when you listen to this track and you think about kind of where you went with music, drums, and you, it's interesting that you said that you, uh, you know, you actually wrote the 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 music for or whatever you know for for that song. What, what does this make you think of in terms of like what seed is this in terms of where you went in the future? Do you think, or how do you see it? Well, it is funny to go back and listen to it because um, it definitely is closer to what the the music that my band makes uh, that I make as communism. It's that you know I I feel like I've gone on a huge journey playing with singer songwriters and playing with the Rio statics and, and producing and doing whatever. And then I've, you know, I've come back to like, Oh, I'm going to, I'm writing my own songs and, and playing shows and running this band. And it, and it's, it's 
definitely in the same vein of the band that I was in in the early 80s, which is pretty funny. That's it. I didn't really do stuff like that. Like I wasn't in a, a new wave band, except the Reostatics had elements of that too, for sure. But, you know, the Reostatics had elements of everything. But yeah, it's, it is pretty funny to go like full circle, like, oh, it's, I can do 80s dance music and and people want to hear that now more than they did then. Is this uh, a track that would have been played anywhere, like uh, on like CFNY or college radio? Did it, did it ever no. make it out of the basement or no? No. No, I have, some, I have a handful of rejection letters from labels <laughs> that we sent it to. You know, we were listening to the radio and there were bands like The Spoons and Martha and the Muffins and we wanted to be like them. Get, you know, get a record deal and then our lives would would be amazing. Uh, I guess at the time there wasn't really like indie, an indie scene that, that grew soon after that. Suddenly it was like, oh, you can just make records and put them out and tour the country in your parents' station wagon and make stuff happen so you don't really need a record label. I mean, one story that comes to my mind when you talk about sort of like pre-indie is the, the influence of the Bare Naked Ladies yellow tape and how the reason that story is relevant to me is, you know, this five song album that they did on their own um, and, you know, put it out and they had their videos that were on, um, you know, by doing speakers corner and stuff like that. I really yeah. think there was a before and after that tape, because I can remember walking into HMV on Yonge street and they had their top 10. And my memory is that the, the yellow tape was right beside Michael Jackson and whatever yeah. that record he had put out at that time. Like it was, they were selling a lot of, particularly in Toronto, so many of those cassettes. And what it did was it kind of opened up a network where stores would actually display indie records, just like other stuff, depending on what it was. And then of course you yeah. combine that with much music and, it, and you're right. It was, I think when you were, when you did this track, it probably was kind of like pre indie in a way. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. That was before I had heard of the bare naked ladies. There were, I think Andrew, well, yeah, it was even before Andrew Cash. I remember when he had, that might be before your time too, but no, he, yeah, he I remember. Put a record out. Yep. And, uh, and yeah, it was such a rare thing to have, you know, there were bands on Queen Street and then there were bands who made a living at it, or so you thought, who were on a label, but you don't really know how much money is made when you're on a label. Who knows? But, but you know that you don't have that. You don't have that, uh, you know, there were, there's like lots of bands battling out to get to Friday night at the Horseshoe or, you know, some sort of weekend gig. I remember the Leslie Spit Trio. Yes. Busted out of the Queen Street scene in a, in a thrilling way and got signed to a major label. Based, basically based on packing every club. Uh, and they started as buskers, you know, and it was, they're like, the original Mumford and Sons or something. Like <laughs> yeah, that's true. Really, that's true. And that's probably, that was, I don't know where that is chronologically compared to that yellow tape, but it's around that time. Now, now um, because, so in this uh, conversation, I, I want to actually move to the next part because your story is unique and I really actually don't know it. And that's part of the reason I want to have these conversations is understand a bit better um you know, just, I guess your, your musical story. So, uh, you know, you're, you're doing this tape and then the next, or the, these songs and the next uh, section of this conversation is called music becoming real. So 
for some of the other people we've talked to, I would say, you know, you're in that band with your buddies and you're, tr- you're finally getting shows and maybe you get a big show or a big opportunity or you get a record deal or something like, and that's, there's different points where music becomes real. Like you say, well, this is what I'm either going to be doing or I think I'm going to be doing. Your story is different in the sense that there's all these different things that you did. Um, but I'm very interested in your answer to that question. So you're, you're coming out of this time, um, with my pal Hoagie and may, maybe other things you're doing. And what, what are the states, the stages coming out leading into you playing yeah. with the Rios or Ron, but before that, like what, what, what is the point maybe where you might say, or you thought to yourself, this music thing is, is a real deal. Yeah, I think, well, I got to mention my grandfather. He, Gordon Kerr from from Glasgow, he moved over to Canada in his early 20s, I believe, and he picked up a trumpet and within two years was was the lead trumpet player in some big bands. Wow. He just like had a knack for playing and reading music, and, and then he did that for uh, several years, and then he, he met his wife and got married and kept playing on the side but he also had a day job as an insurance salesman and uh, paid off his house on Pape Avenue in two years I think wow back on you know I think the house was $2,500 or something (laughs) you know and uh, but you know by the time I came along he he had long quit music and he probably regretted quitting it he just needed to focus on work and making money and whatnot and he he uh, told me he used to tell me donald i think if you had any talent it would have shown up by now because <laughs> i was in my tw- early 20s by then and he and i was working at a health food store and playing gigs with every band i could get join and uh you know not making any real money or any real inroads into getting a record contract or anything but playing a ton of music um but anyway, yeah, so that's a funny thing. Uh, he also, a great his story. Other thing, his other great thing was the Beatles ruined music. <laughs> and, and he actually has a point uh, where he says, in my day, everybody knew their place. You had your lyricist, your songwriter, the arranger, the musician, the singer. Every, nobody crossed the lines. And then the Beatles came along. They did everything. Now, now the radio's full of all this crap. <laughs> and I, <laughs> I think it's pretty funny because uh, he's saying they were good, but they opened a door to uh, everybody just doing their own thing. And and I think technically, uh, you know, he has some sort of point. But he, if he's not factoring in the the uh, the direct emotional and life experience content of music, because if you know if you have professionals doing everything, it's going to all be good. But it's not going to be like. Joni Mitchell mining the depths of the human soul, you know? So it's funny. I just love that. In other words, music became unreal as soon as the Beatles came along for (laughs) for him, right? Yeah. Yeah. Too real for him. He did. He, he needed the structure, the old, the old ways, but, but yeah, I guess what happened in my, my story, uh, playing with my buddies, you know, I had this one band. I didn't know a lot of other people in Toronto, except my buddies and I, who all came from Clarkson out in Mississauga. And uh, 
And so we were playing, and I, one thing that happened was the bass player and myself, Steve and I, we um, we saw this beautiful woman dancing at the at the uh, big bop uh, at a uh, at a at a show, and and we found out that she had a band that she was a fronted a band. She was just like shockingly irresistible, you know. She had a lot of charisma, so we. Uh, we found out she had a band, and then we found out their, that her band was looking for a rhythm section. <laughs> so uh, then we found out that her band was her and her husband, which was okay, because the band was really good. It was called the Rhythm Twins. Okay. And saw them play somewhere as a duo with some beatbox or some, you know, some stuff, and they were looking for a live rhythm section. And, and uh, so we joined, or we auditioned and got the part, and we're, we joined that band. And then... Uh, and then that band used to play a lot around town, and and that woman's name is Britt, and her favorite person in Toronto was Kurt Swinghammer. She mm, so yep. he she would get him to open for the, a lot of shows, and it's, that's how I met Kurt, and uh, and I thought he was incredible as well. He's fantastic, and I so I that band split up. The, the couple split up, and the band split up, and. Uh, and I went to Kurt, and I said, hey, I, I'm looking, you know, I want to play. I think you should have a band, and I want to be your drummer. And he said, uh, I don't, I'm not looking for a band right now. Uh, he was incredible playing by himself. He would sound like a whole band. But, but I've got these two, my two best friends are both looking for bands. Like his oldest, two of his oldest friends from the Niagara region are Ron Sexsmith and Dale Morningstar. <laughs> and they were both in Toronto looking for a drummer and a bass player. And uh, maybe he told me about Ron first. Because I, I, anyway, and it, Kurt, Kurt was my uh, conduit to everything. Because he mentioned Ron Sexsmith. And I was working as a courier at Sunwheel Couriers at the time. And yes. I said, I, I hear that name on the radio all day. Like on the, the shortwave or whatever, the uh, CB radios. Uh, at that at work i think he i think i work with that guy so i i went and into at the end of the day one a couple days later i i asked somebody which guy's ron sexsmith and he, oh he's over there writing and you know writing at the end of his day paperwork and i i looked at him and said that to myself that guy he's this great songwriter wow that he doesn't that look like he looks so shy and anyway i got together with him and played his songs were so good, and and like his original material was so good. Even then, he he hadn't put out anything; nothing would come out for years. But he he still had. I just was blown away by his his lyrics, and you know he was kind of like like I said before, my old band. We all had tons of musical ideas and had no idea what to say. I meet this guy, and he's got like a real gift and a knack and he's his his yeah and and even the covers that we jammed on on uh i was made to love her by stevie wonder and and marie i think by randy newman like two of my favorite songs of all time and he just had them like in his blood and i just thought here this guy this is the this is the guy i've been looking for i want to play with this guy he's not wondering oh can i write a song or what should i say or he's just churning out he's making it happen so 
that I was convinced I, when I jammed with Ron, I just thought, okay, this guy's brilliant and amazing. And, and, uh, you know, I want to play music with him and support what he does and go along for that ride. And boy, did I ever. So, and then also meeting Kurt, Dale through Kurt and, and starting a studio with Dale, Dale being like a, a madman who, you know, I was, he's just such a wild, wild person. I remember we put our, together our four tracks. We each had a four track and we sold them and bought an eight track reel to reel together and, uh, learned how to use that and started producing and or recording other bands and, and uh and then eventually he said we got to get a one inch machine a 16 track and i and he was always pushing for more better gear and i just thought i was always hesitant thinking well I, we gotta isn't it fine what we have and he was you know without him i wouldn't have made i wouldn't have ended up producing uh for a living i would have just had a little eight track machine to do fun stuff on the side of playing drums but then producing ended up being, you know, like a much more, much more of a of a professional activity because people, you know, you can make money playing drums, but you can make a living playing or producing people, recording people. I, I definitely remember when I think of, you know, because the point of reference to the to the inbreds, of course, is that we um, recorded Combinator at the gas station and then also the album Winning Hearts. And they, those were both at the original gas station, which was uh, yeah before the Toronto Island version, and and it was with Dale. Yeah. But I I was trying to think before this conversation. I don't believe that, like I, I feel like that first time we were recording there, it was some point during the week that that might have been where I first met you at the studio because we worked just with Dale, not with you. And yeah. I think it might have been at the studio. Is is do I have that right? I believe so. Yeah. Yeah, like he, you know. We, Dale and I shared a studio, but we pretty much never worked together. Um, the only time we ever worked together that I can... Well, we we worked together when we were figuring out how to do stuff, but then we each would start getting hired to do to do projects. And, uh, yeah, we just share, you know, co-owned a studio. And uh, so I would maybe pop in to get something or, or I don't, you know... I wouldn't be at the studio generally if he had a session because I would just be an extra person. One uh, plot point I'd add uh, about Dale Morningstar for those that may be listening to this is that um, he um, was in the band Dinner's Ruined, has done a whole bunch of interesting uh, musical things uh, over the years. But uh, uh, because of the stuff that I had done with Dale over the year, years, there was one point I decided, uh, this was maybe 15 years ago, I wanted to do sort of a... Uh, kind of like a homespun documentary on Dale. So it is actually on YouTube. If you ever want to check out and learn a bit more about Dale, particularly the version of Dale, which is about 15 years ago, it's a, uh, it's on YouTube. Maybe I'll put a link to it in the show notes for this show, just in wow. interest's sake. I, yeah, um, I, I and I don't think, I don't, I'm not sure a lot of people have ever seen it, but it, I, I went out and, and interviewed him out at Toronto Island. This was the Toronto Island era. And then Kevin Lynn from King Cobb Steely was the person who helped me edit it together. And it's, it's even got an intro sequence from our friend Jenny San Martin, so I'll put that in the show notes for for kicks. But uh, yeah, that's kind of the 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 story of how you and Dale connect is, and but the way you were were also very separate was also part of the part of the whole plot line and storyline for me. But I I just love that you know there's 
your stage, as you said, well, it's you, you, yeah, maybe if you hadn't met Dale, you would, you would have just been a player, not a, not a, you know, a, whatever, a producer or behind, you know, and that's, it's such a huge part of both of those things are still part of your, what you do today, you know, um, in terms of going back to communism and all that. So it's great, right? Yeah. And touring, I'm still touring with bands playing drums with Bahamas and Dan Mangan. So, you know, Ron's touring solo these days, which I've been advising him to do for years because it's just so expensive to take a whole band around the world. But uh, I've been so lucky to keep getting hired by younger people. Um, It's awesome. Here's an interesting topic because I bet it's still the same today. But uh, one one memory I, I have of of touring with you, and this was not the Rio Statics tour that was that we talked about with the car. There was the probably the exact opposite where we were on we were both on roadside attraction together, yeah. and we shared a tour bus. Uh, we uh, one thing I remember from that was your your eating habits. Oh yeah, uh, I would say that you were one of the at close range uh, one of the first people I saw really eating healthy in a way that is kind of like, so this would have been, I don't know what, 20, 25 years ago. All the things that people, is very common now. <laughs> the first time I really saw it at close range was with you. And examples I would give would be avocados, uh, you know, n- like nut, nut-based protein. There was all these things, uh, even miso, where these were, I think, some of the first times, and you would bring all this stuff with you or get it on tour on that, that, uh, that you know, bus tour. Yeah. Um, have you always been a healthy eater like that? And I'm assuming you're still very healthy eating today, right? Oh yeah. I, uh, yeah, I've, I've, I'm not, well, I wasn't always, but as a, yeah, as a kid, I, I was a normal suburban kid in the sixties and seventies eating, you know, craft dinner and, and, uh, whenever that came along, processed cheese and all the worst, basically the white bread and all that stuff. And so as a, after high school, I got a job downtown at a health food store and they had this library of freaky books on health food ideas and gardening and diets and macrobiotics and stuff. And uh, they had, I basically, over the years that I worked there, I tried every possible healthy eating idea and, uh, and, you know, some of the, some stuff worked and some some was a disaster and what you know uh but uh it totally blew my mind wide open to like think about what you eat because i think before that i just was like a regular north american where you just your stomach goes grrr and you put some a burger in it and then you keep going on with your day but uh yeah i i i do feel like it's funny. I realized lately that I, I, I tried a thing. I tried to invent Uber Eats thirty years ago. I, I, okay. There was this vegan restaurant that was uh, unlicensed. Um, so, and the guy could feed like eight people at a time um, in Kensington Market, just in a in a house. And I used to go there. It was five bucks for a full meal. It was all vegan. And this was 1987 uh, when I was a bike courier. I I lived around the corner from this place. And I would get home and and, uh, 
or I was just when I found this restaurant, I just started going there every every night, and the food was incredible. And I got to know the guy, and I was getting really tired of couriering corporate checks around Toronto. It was bothering mm-hmm. me ethically, and uh, so I just I I said I just want to make music and do you know maybe I could work work for you like can you hire me you know and uh he's so he said he could hire me as a dishwasher and prep cook but he'd have to figure out new ways to make money because the the place was so small he could only make enough money to to pay himself so i had the idea that he he was making he started making lunches like falafels and he this guy had he was an incredible chef and uh he was making these things called kofta balls and like a falafel but full of shredded cabbage and and uh really good it doesn't sound that exciting when i say it but they were delicious and amazing and he, bet. He, bet. He, he made a tofu cream pie or he made a meringue on on a lemon pie that was made out of tofu and it was delicious which i haven't experienced since and that was 30 years ago the guy knew <laughs> how to work anything uh, so i had the idea because i had just been a bike courier that i would take um a bunch of sandwiches he'd make like 20 20 of these wraps like falafels and make them and i put them in a box and i'd go to this one building in toronto where all the social justice little groups had their their big hive you know there's a place called 720 bathurst right now that's kind of similar where you find all the cool forward-thinking people working and i thought i'll just go there every day and be like hey lunch you know three bucks a sandwich who want you know and uh, s- tell them that it would happen like every day because i because i met all I'd, I'd seen all the cool where all the cool people were as a courier because i'd be delivering stuff to you know either banks or else these these other awesome more world changing sort of organizations and uh it did not fly I don't know why, but the idea didn't work. Delivering food. I think the key with Uber Eats is people have to want the food before you yeah. show up with it. Yeah. So, Burgers, right? Didn't work. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what people order on Uber Eats, but it's it's basically anything they want and it shows up. And the idea of just showing up with lunch um, with with the amount of charisma I had at the time was was not a success. But that's a great Pretty story, funny. John. But the um, one that got away, you know. Yeah, yeah, and being a vegan in 1987, I'm not, I'm not a vegan now, but but I did go through lots of all those, all those things, and I I do think about food and its impact on the world and myself and all that, and and definitely the the world has caught up to that kind of thinking. I do well, like to think I I had some. I think I was just at the at the front of a wave. I don't think I caused the. Uh, I can't claim responsibility for every rider in every dressing room to have carrots and hummus and blue corn chips. Even though well, I was, I think there's there's so many elements of your story that uh, we just are not going to have time to cover. Like for example, when we talk about food, I, you've always been outspoken in a. You've been politically progressive i think you've been environmental before that was a thing and you you're you're very active in all those areas but in you know to sort of respect the time for this conversation i'm gonna i'm gonna go to the last section called flash forward and so we're gonna flash forward past a whole bunch of things that you have done and one of them that jumps to mind because again another one people may not know about is the khalili brothers 
uh, just, just an interesting, I'm going to put a link into that one. Cause that's the, these are these albums that you did when you were touring with Ron Sexsmith and you guys were able to, uh, literally record covers and I think some originals in, in the van and, and make yeah. these amazing records that are like, kind of like an old time feel. And, uh, you know, I've loved those records, listen to them all the time, but there's, there's so many different things that you've done over the years as we jump up to now, and we're getting into the communism project, as you said, um, touring with Bahamas. Uh, what, what, tell us, what is your, um, what's your life like today? You've got, you've got, you've got a house, you've got, you've got a very interesting, uh, dynamic family. What can you say about your life today, Don? Bring us up to speed. Uh, well, right now, on a personal level, I'm feeling more, I'm, I'm feeling aware of the fact that I'm, I'm but a conduit between my parents and my children that, and any, like, that's my main, my main, uh, function to me right now is that I, that I, I'm, or I'm just more aware that, that all the, all the best qualities of my parents have come through me and I've managed to keep some of them and hopefully expand on some of them. And then, then they are also in my kids and they're more expanded by my kids. My kids are incredible. Uh, I am very biased, but I love them and I'm amazed and super proud of them. And, uh, and I'm so lucky because my wife, Claudia Day is brilliant and hilarious. And, uh, yeah, she's got, so much going on it's mind-boggling and and amazing to just be around so and then i just keep getting to to travel and play music with super interesting people like i just went to a, a thing called the big ears festival in knoxville tennessee playing drums and cello with the weather station cool uh, for the i've never had never played a show with with the weather station before. And that was super amazing. A great, it was a car trip. The four of us in a car driving down over two days and there for three or four days and back for two days, just with people who I love, who I don't know that well. And that now I know them a lot better. And that was just like a family vacation with three new people. Uh, and, uh, the, the festival was so inspiring. It's, uh, kicked me, in the butt to want to just bring my musicianship up as high as I can get it. And, uh, and yeah, I just, well, one thing I got to say when you, when you talk about your, your, that, that's pretty heavy way to put it, uh, being a conduit between your parents and your kids. But, uh, I find listening to particularly the, the, um, the lyrics of communism, the most recent record, but really both records, there's such, uh, it really reflects the, I could say like the positive side of your personality and the fact that it sounds to me like you're communicating with your, with your family through those lyrics. And I'm saying that as a guy, I listen to a lot of mopey music. I got to admit, um, and yet that, that communism, particularly lyrically is very positive. And it's, like I said, it sounds, it sounds like a, a word in musical conversation with your family. So that's, that's very inspiring and very cool. Um, and then, but you mentioned that trip and what, this is one question I've asked to others. And I just, I, cause I think in your case, it's, and I mean, um, it's kind of an obvious question, but I'm really interested in your case because you've done so many different things, but what would you say is like, 
a true career highlight out of all the stuff you've done? Is there anything that really jumps to mind? Is that one time this one thing happened? We were out wherever. Huh. Wow. Yeah, that I, I don't know. There's so many, like maybe getting to play music in Japan, uh, like 10 times probably with Ron Smith and Ireland as well. Like when I think of stuff that blows my mind, just being able to go to both of those countries and travel around them and get to know people and see what life is like there and how incredible and how different it is than here, both those places. I mean, Japan is, it's the wildest thing I've seen on the planet. It's so futuristic and ancient and different and jam-packed and functioning well. It's just mind-blowing. I love it. Uh, and, and you're with your friend that you met when you were a bike courier. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then bringing my family along on trips has turned out to be unbelievable as well. Uh, just, and, and, you know, and, and because I am the older, the older person in most of the bands I'm traveling with now, like last, last year, Dove, my teenage son came along on the Bahamas tour because it was partly over March break. Yeah. And so the whole family flew to uh, San Francisco to be with some family down there and Dove got to turn 16 at the Fillmore with all his cousins and, and his, their best friends. And, and then he hopped on the tour bus with us and went to LA and, and New Mexico and Texas and all these cool places. And he and I, you know, biked around these towns and thrift shopped and ate as many tacos as we could in a week Cause, and it just had the best time. And all the other, every, everyone else in the band, all the other parents in the band were like, yes. I, so they were so, I mean, everyone was super nice to Dove and, and welcoming to him. And the, all the dads in the band were just thinking, I hope I get to, I hope my son or daughters or whoever can come, you know, the kids can come on, on a tour sometime. Cause it, it just, uh, it's a it's such a great way to see the world, and then it's an incredible way to show your kids the world and the uh, the possibilities of how how different and how different things are, and how the same people are at that at our root, and how exotic and fun. Well, one interesting thing about that that story highlights is the, of course, the a theme that we've already picked up here is you know what a you know, how much being a parent matters to you and how, and how seriously you take it. And I think to me, it seems like you're doing pretty well at it, which is amazing. Um, and then uh, another element is it's, I'd say this, if there was a young musician listening to this or want to be a musician, um, the one thing that's highly underrated, uh, in, in music is a lot of times you, you know, music skill is needed and you, you highlight in your career, a lot of things. Like I can remember when you learned, I think you pretty much ta- taught yourself how to play cello. You know, you can play, uh, all these different instruments that you've, I believe are pretty much self-taught. So that's all amazing, great stuff. But the one thing that you've got, and you mentioned Bahamas or weather station is the ability to hang and like the ability to hang and interact with other people and have empathy and 
understand and just and just not be annoying is something that is so underrated. Like you have to have musical skill, but oh, if you I'm, and that's I'm whether you're in a band or even just want to be like a side a side person. It's it's something that you you uh, are exemplary in that, and that's why you're still very much in demand. And you've done you, you know your your resume is, is massive in terms of the people you've played with. It's great. Awesome. Yeah, I would say I would say that you can be super annoying as long as you love the people and the music. Uh, yes. Cause, you know, cause there's so many different ways to be annoying when I mean, everybody's annoying, but I'm definitely annoying, but I'm also like my heart's in it hundred percent and you can't fake that or you can't not notice that. I think, I mean, and if I had no skill, you know, at all, then that would be a sad thing. Cause I'd be a fun hang with who, can't play at all so you gotta you know you have to work you have to get your skills and you have to care you have to put your skills into the music in a way that is caring of the big picture i think that's the main thing and then and then it's just so much fun uh to just yeah to share you're sharing life experiences with people through music the music is for me the music is totally secondary to uh, figure out what is what's going on, how can we help? That's that's the main thing. Again, sounds like a communism lyric to me. But <laughs> let, let's. I want to move to the very last question, and I do a version of this kind of question. It's sort of like the kind of life lesson sort of thing. So let's try if if you're going if you were to go back to um, you know twelve year old Don sketching in front of the TV, um, and you were to say say be able to say something to that person and say that version of you say about what making a life in music um, might mean or could happen. Is there anything that you would say to that person today, given everything that all the amazing experiences you've had? Um, yeah. Wow. I think, I think I would say just be brave and super honest and work really hard all the normal things um, that, that, that all the normal advice is kind of good advice. I think, um, yeah, I think you can't help, but as a kid, when you're young, you just can't help, but wonder if, if you have any worth, I guess, uh, unless you're one of those weird people who's just convinced that you're, that you're amazing. But I yeah. don't know. I don't even know any of those people, but you can seem like that, but it's probably because you really, really, really doubt that you're worthy. So, you know, that's just part of being a human. It's, you can't, no advice can erase that. But I would, I would try to tell anybody that that feeling is one of the most universal feelings. And it's going to, that's, that's just one of the feelings that brings you closer to everybody else. Uh, you know, so if you're feeling something like that, just go with it, feel it, try to express it to a friend or in a piece of music or both, and uh, keep dealing with your stuff uh, as publicly as possible so that you uh, keep moving and you help other people keep moving. So I think that the main thing that keep kept me down ever was just loneliness and worry and fear and you know and that's you can't avoid it entirely but eventually you just get out there and 
talk to somebody or do something. And I think the more we, the more we know that that everything we feel is totally common to other people, even though it might not seem like that, and just get out there and mix it up with other people in harmonious ways. Obviously, music is a great example of how to do that. And uh, and just yeah, we got this this messy society and uh, messy pile of humans, and but every one of us can help and can can learn and can do stuff and can resonate with each other and keep on rocking, have fun and grow some food. All I Want off the latest album by Don Kerr's band Communism. The album's called Love Speech. And earlier in the uh, the show, we listened to the song Wave Make Us Feel by Don's very early band called My Pal Hoagie. And uh, again, another uh, really good deep history with Don. It was really great to go through all the, uh, all the stories from the early days. And one other one I would uh, like to point out is... Uh, that Don was also very helpful for the very first year of my county pop music festival in uh, Prince Edward County, uh, helping um, helping get our headliner, Ron Sexsmith. And then, of course, Don played with Communism at that show, and that was my first time seeing the band, and they literally blew the lid off of this place called the Crystal Palace, and uh, that was a really great show. So I appreciate that one as well, Don. Thank you. Okay, so that's a wrap of Episode 7 of Salad Days. And uh, I really appreciate you all sticking around and listening. So uh, we'll be back again. See you soon. All I really, really want our love to do is to bring out the best in me and you too. I want to talk to you. If you like this podcast, be sure to subscribe, like, and tell all your best music-loving friends about it. Today's episode was brought to you by Zunior.com and me, Lemonade Dave. I've done a lot of things in music over the years, but these days, I mostly make bottled lemonade by hand in Prince Edward County. I'm going to crack a cold one right now. But if you're ever in PEC, be sure to ask for it by name, 
and tell them Dave sent you. Dave had it made, sitting pretty in the shade, heaven gave him lemons, and he squeezed it into lemonade, to think a drink without the trouble, of drinking drinks and shots and doubles, he said hark I'll make it sparkle. Get a bottle, that is.